How many are Downton Abbey fans? How many have never seen the show? Wow! <laughs> How many find watching Downton Abbey like having your eyelids tattooed? <laughs> For the uninitiated among you, and there's a lot of you apparently, Downton Abbey is a TV show about an early 20th century um, country estate. It is the home of the aristocratic Crawley family and all of their servants that make life possible there. And it's interesting when you're watching the opening credits, you don't even see a face. All you see is the work that the servants are doing. You see a shutter being thrown open. You see a lamp being lit. You see a chandelier being dusted. You see someone with a a ruler measuring out the place setting on the table at every place. Has to be exactly right. That's my job at home. I... uh, The only glimpse, in fact, that you have of the aristocrat is the very first moment of the opening credits when you see the earl of the the lord of the manor who is walking his dog. Remember? That's the only place you see that. Otherwise, it's all the labor of the servants. It's the work of the anonymous servants. And the Crawley family, they live a life of, of ease and of privilege. Their breakfast is brought to them in bed. They have servants who dress them and undress them and redress them. And they, the house, even the design of the house, is, it's designed to keep the workers and all of the work they do for them out of sight so they don't have to know what, what goes on in order for life to be lived the way they like it. Every need, every wish, every want is anticipated and cared for. And this life of luxury is built on the labor, the backs of their servants, their workers. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about work. And for those of you who are retired, I'm talking to you because you still have work to do. For those of you who are students, I'm talking to you because your work right now is your, is your student, is your schoolwork. We're going to talk about this. It, it has been estimated that something like 57% of our hours of our working career, that's about 46 years, so 57% of our waking hours for about 46 of our years, goes towards work. Think about that. 57%. Now listen, most of us are Christians, although I know some of you are not Christians, but most of us are. Those of us who are are Christians, we're trying to learn what it means to live our life under the Lordship of Christ. You know, we stumble along the way. Sometimes we do better than other times at allowing Christ to be the Lord of our life. But that is what we are about if we really are followers of Jesus. But if our best selves are serious about the lordship of Christ over every area of our life, then surely it would matter whether or not Christ is the lord of our work life, won't it? I mean, 57% of our hours, our waking hours, surely it matters whether Christ is the lord of that 57% or not, doesn't it? Unfortunately for too many Christians, there's this huge Sunday, Monday sacred, secular divide, isn't there? We come on Sunday morning, we go to worship, we we go home, we enjoy the rest of the Sabbath, but then on Monday morning, it's back to the real world, as we call it, the world of work. And we have a hard time connecting the spiritual side of ourselves, which is right here, to the work side of ourselves, which is the rest of our life. I talked with a business leader about this very thing this week. In fact, in preparing for this series, I've been asking all kinds of people questions about work. 
Here's what one business leader said to me, and see if this resonates with you. He said, a lot of us business guys feel at odds with our church life. We struggle with how the two go together. We struggle with how much money we make. We struggle with how much money we give or don't give, especially if we aren't tithing yet. We struggle because sometimes our leadership requires tough talk and tough actions. We have to chew out employees. We have to fire employees, he says. And then we are accused of not being Christian. We don't, here's the line that really got me. We don't know how to be at ease with our work. Does that ring true for some of you? We don't know how to be at ease with the 57% of our waking hours. What if I were to tell you that the spiritual side and the work side are meant to be the same thing? What if I said that God is just as interested in the way you work as he is in the way you worship? In fact, that your work is worship, or at least it can be. What if, would you believe that God could be interested in the 40 or 50 or 60 hours that you spend teaching kids and healing bodies and reconciling accounts and building websites and drilling your soldiers and making a profit and shuttling your children hither and thither and going to school and putting out fires? Would you be surprised to discover that God is just as interested in you in those settings and activities as he is when you are here seated in these pews singing praises to him? What if I told you that God loves work and that God loves your work? Would you believe that? Well, I'm going to tell you that. And I'm going to tell you that a lot in the coming weeks. I'm going to pound away at this. By the time we're done, if you come faithfully, you're going to believe that God loves your work. So where shall we start? We're going to start with a little history lesson. Are you ready to buckle in? This is one of those moments you kind of buckle in the pew belts and kind of lean in a little bit because I'm going to get a, a little deeper here. Here's, here's where we go. For thousands of years, for thousands of years, as long as people have been thinking about these things, there was a prevailing impression that God or gods didn't work. That work was beneath them. That work was something that was done by their created beings so that gods could live a life of leisure. Just like the Earl of Grantham and Downton Abbey. Workers exist so that aristocrats can walk away. They while away their day and leisures. They, they walk their, their country, their dog around their country estate. That's why workers exist. And in religious terms, humans work so gods can have fun. That was the prevailing view. It was the universal view of work and religion for thousands of years. And then Yahweh came along. Then Yahweh revealed himself to Abraham. And then later he revealed himself to Moses. And in that revealing, we discovered something entirely different. A different glimpse of God and a different glimpse of work. And to our surprise, we discovered that Yahweh is a blue-collar God. Yahweh is a working God. So our starting point is going to be to find out what God thinks about work. And there's no better way to do that than to turn to the earliest verses of the earliest book in the Bible. So pull out your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's on page 2 in your pew Bibles. Easier to find this one than some. Right at the beginning. Here we go. Genesis chapter 2. Beginning with verse 1. Just to remind you... 
chapter 1 kind of does the overview of creation. So now we come to chapter 2 and he's focusing in a little bit. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in us today? And we who live in separate lives, sacred and secular, Sunday and Monday, would you bring us together? Would you unify us? Will you integrate us to believe that we can bless you with the other five days, the other six days of our life? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The name of the first book in the Bible is... And it is named after the very first word in the Bible, which is Genesis or Origins or In the Beginning. And Genesis is in the beginning of the beginning. It is the account of the creation of the cosmos. Genesis, however, is not the only ancient account that tells us how everything got started. Now, it's the only one that's true, but it's not the only ancient account. Here's where you've got to buckle up a little bit. I'm going to teach you some ancient history, okay? For instance, the Mesopotamians, they got a story about how things got started. It's called Enuma Elish. I'm sure some of you were reading it last night. Right after your reruns of Downton Abbey, you pulled out a Numa Elish and you're finding out about the Mesopotamian creation epic. The Greeks had stories too. They had myths and stories about how creation came into existence. But the Genesis account is utterly unique from every other religious account of creation in this. In Genesis, creation is the result of God's hard work. In Enumi Elish, there's a battle going on between competing gods in the heavens. And, and the creation comes about because of this, this competing uh, force, these, this hostility between competing deities. And ultimately, the gods in Enumi Elish, they, they create human beings to do their work for them so they don't have to do work. The, in the Greek myths, Greek, the, the gods and the humans kind of hang around together in a, in a nice garden, but there's no work to be done. The, the food just magically appears and they all eat it and frolic together. But in the biblical account of creation, we see God at work. Yahweh is at work, and he works fast, and he works hard. The first chapter is the account of creation of all that is. In six days, God creates everything. And how does he create in chapter 1? He speaks. Let there be light. Let there be a separation of the waters from the earth. Uh, let the, let the, the, the waters teem with creatures. He speaks it and it comes into existence. Six days later, all of the cosmos is created. By the way, he seems to have fun doing it. Did you notice that? Because every time he creates something, he stands back and says, what? Hey, that's good. That's pretty good. He, there is nobody else created yet. So he's got to be the one that's patting himself on the divine back. Good job, God. Yay, God. Yay, me. Great universe. Well done. Woo-hoo-hoo. And at the very end of the whole thing, he actually stands back 
and surveys the whole of his creation. And he makes his final pronouncement, which is what? And behold, he saw that it was very good. Very good. He looked at the work of his hand and he said, "Mm, that is very good. God was proud of his work. Do you ever feel proud of your work? Proud of your handiwork? Proud of of what you've done by your sweat, the sweat of your brow and your grit? When was the last time that you stood back from your handiwork and said, oh, that is good? I bet the folks in Agros who were there who go back and they see what once was just a, a jungle has now been turned into a village that sustains the life of hundreds of people. You've got to go down, you gotta go down there and you say, oh, that's very good. Last time I can remember thinking about it was when I was in Mexico this last year with the kids. You're standing there and you're looking at a house that your hands have created, right? Where only four days ago there was just a patch of hard, dry dirt. But now you're looking at this house that your hands have created. And you see the faces of the family that walked through the door the first time. And they're weeping and you're weeping and everybody's weeping. And you say, oh, that's very good. Isn't that right? Well, that was right except for when I looked at that door that took me, you know, the door from hell that took me seven hours to hang. I didn't have good words to say about that. But every other part of that house, I looked upon with pride and said, that is very good. It's important to understand this unique perspective from the Bible on work. Creation doesn't occur because of of competing gods in conflict. There is no competition for Yahweh. Creation doesn't occur because it had to. He had to come up with something and so he does it. Creation occurs as an intentional work of God. He didn't have to work. He wanted to work. He wanted to create. He wanted to organize. He wanted to arrange the stuff. And when he was done, he wanted to stand back and admire it. God created. God worked for the sheer delight of it. We have lost the delight of work. If we're going to have a healthy view of work, this idea is foundational. We have a blue-collar God. We have a working God. You see it in Genesis 1 as he creates the whole thing. You really see it in Genesis 2. The passage we read earlier where it focuses in tight on on the creation of man. And here we discover that God not only creates by word, what else does he do? Our blue collar God gets his hands dirty. Literally, he gets his hand dirty. Look, verse 67, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. Can't you see him doing that? The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And you have this image of the almighty God playing in the mud. And boy, when he creates mud pies, watch out, something special happens. He's getting dirt under his fingernails. And he's not done getting physical when he's done forming this out. Then it says, we read that that he does something more. Verse, it continues here. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is that? Mouth to mouth... It's not resuscitation. There was no suscitation before. So it's, I guess, mouth-to-mouth suscitation. He takes this, this shell that he created with his hands playing in the mud, breathes life into it, presses his lips to the, to the lips of his new creation and turns this lifeless shell into his greatest creation. And he stands back and says, Oh, isn't this fun? If you don't get that, you don't get Genesis. It's like, it's like the... 
the auto, uh, owner of an auto repair, a series of auto repair shops. He has uh, mechanics that do all that work for him, but he still has to pull out his tools and crawl under the hood and fix something just because he delights in the work, right? This is our God who delights in getting his hands dirty. And this unique view from the Bible, it's the view that work is good. We have a blue-collar God who delights in work. By the way, God the Father is not the only member of the Trinity that enjoys work. When God the Son came to earth, he had a career. What was his career? Yes! He came to earth and he had a job to do before he had the job to do. The gospel sp- Talk about Jesus living probably 33 years. Well, we only really know something about the last three years of that. And yet we get a hint in Mark chapter 15 of the first half of his career before his preaching ministry. Here's what it says, Mark 13, 53. When Jesus had finished teaching these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, what was his hometown? Nazareth, coming to Nazareth, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they ask. Then they begin to realize, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's mother? His mother's name is Mary and aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Poor sisters don't even get named. You know, all the girls too. Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. It's a very interesting phrase for his... Why was it that the residents of Jesus' hometown were offended at the teaching and the miracles of Jesus? It's this, because to him, to them, he wasn't Jesus the prophet. He wasn't Jesus the Messiah. He wasn't Jesus the Savior of the world. He was Jesus what? The carpenter. His dad died when he was young. He inherited the family business and he carried it on. The word carpenter is actually tecton. We get technician from it. It means more than a worker in wood. It means a worker in all kinds of materials. Jesus probably worked with wood, but probably also worked with stone, worked with metal. He was, he was more of a, a contractor than just a carpenter. So he built with wood, he built plows, he built furniture, but it is likely that some of the houses of the people in Nazareth that they were living in, Jesus built those houses. That's pretty cool, isn't it? In other words, Jesus, get this, was a small business owner for about 15 or 18 years of his life. Before he ever started his second career as savior of the world... He was a small business owner who worked with subcontractors and negotiated bids and purchased supplies and and oversaw projects and dealt with grumpy customers. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? What must it have been like to use a plow that was made by Jesus? And did the stuff just pop up as soon as you plow? You know, magic. And what was it like to sleep in a bed that was made by Jesus? That, That was a good night's sleep. Don't you think? Or think about this. When he was talking to his disciples, he said, you know, in my father's house are many homes, many rooms, and I go to prepare one for you, and when I'm done, I'll come back and get you. That was 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine what it's like to own a house in heaven that Jesus has spent 2,000 years tidying up for you? You each have a house like that prepared for you, and imagine the carpenter of Nazareth has put his very best to it. 
God the Father is a blue-collar God. God the Son is a blue-collar God. His hands are rough and his hand, fingers have been scarred from splinters and, and mishammer hits and, you know, stuff that happens when you're working with your hands. Even God the Holy Spirit is a blue-collar God. He's a worker. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Do you know what that word means? It's the word for a hen sitting on her eggs. The first glimpse that we have of the Spirit is her doing her work. Later on in Exodus, we read that God put the Spirit into Bezalel so that he would have the ability, the gifts, the the creative craftsmanship to work with gold and silver and stonework to build the tabernacle. He made a worker, a better worker, the Spirit did. And then we find the Holy Spirit appear in the New Testament. It is one of the names he is given is paraclete, which means helper, worker. We have a blue-collar God. Every member of the Trinity is a working God. If you are going to have a healthy, balanced, God-honoring view of your work life, this is where we start. Our God is a working God. Work is a part of the blessing of creation. Work is intended to be life-giving and delightful. Work can be holy. It was meant to be worship. When we understand this, It transforms our view of our own work. It breaks down that Sunday-Monday divide. And it can instill in us a sense of pride at the call of God upon you in your work week. But I'm afraid that the church, starting right here with the clergy, the church has been largely responsible for conveying a false notion. And here it is. The real call of God is a call to professional Christian ministry. That's the real call. If you're a pastor, if you're a missionary, if you're a youth worker, so Dustin, Ryan, you guys are, you're in this club, then that's a call of God. But if you're an engineer or a teacher or a plumber or a sales clerk or a homemaker or a student or a barista, well, that's just a job. Pays the bills. Provides money for you to to support your church, which is the real ministry of God. But at its best, it's a secondary type of calling. This. This is the big time right here. What happens up here? This is the real thing. This is a spiritual calling. I don't know if I've ever conveyed that to you. I might have. But I don't believe it. I have never believed it. But it seems more important than ever that we dispel that horrible notion and that we empower all of you to believe that God calls his people to every kind of profession. And it's not as a backup because you couldn't cut it in the real spiritual calling of life. It is because God loves and calls and equips engineers and teachers and plumbers and sales clerks and homemakers and students and baristas. To be his servants in those capacities and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And if I've led you to believe otherwise, please forgive me. But by the time I'm done pounding away at this in the next coming weeks, you will know better. And this is our starting point. Our work and our worship need not be at odds, as my business friend put it. Because we have a God who loves work. We have a God who does work. And by the work that didn't, by the, by the way, that work didn't stop with the last moment of creation. 
When you turn to John 5, 17, and you can look at it later. But here's what Jesus says, John 5, 17. My father is always at his work to this very day. God's still working. He's not sitting back kicking his feet up. He's still at work. And Jesus goes on, and I too am working. The very work that the Father has given me to finish, I am doing it. This morning when we come to the Lord's table, we remember how Jesus finished his work. He finished his work that took him all the way to the cross. The work of Jesus was literally blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus' work was hard work. It was unappreciated. He was abused. He was killed. But he finished his work. The work of our redemption. Christ gave his life to save yours. Christ gave his life to redeem yours. And Christ gave his life to break down the artificial boundaries that exist between the sacred and the secular. Between the Sunday and the Monday. This is the only person of whom this can be said that is a good thing. Christ worked himself to death. It's said of others, but in no other way can it be said, well, Christ worked himself to death so that we might have life. To give eternal meaning to the work that you do as a mother and a doctor and a student and an electrician and a musician and a waitress and a pilot. And this morning as we come to the table of the Lord, we are reminded again of how hard God worked to save our lives. And if you are grateful for his labor... His labor of love that I invite you to come and partake of this meal. of Jesus shed for you his church his sweetheart church Jesus thank you for working yourself to death thank you that we have life thank you that you did not shirk from the, the hardness of the task but you embraced it and you finished it thank you that we are in that sense finished works of righteousness even as your spirit continues to be at work transforming us into the persons you long for us to be. Thank you for that craftsmanship. And we, we, we submit the materials of our lives to your care. We bless you and offer this prayer in the name of our great working God. Amen.